and welcome back to the Racing Mindcast, the show that helps athletes slow down their minds so they can race past their limits. I'm Chris Haig. And I'm Morgan Big and Buff Babies. And today we are kicking off our monthly interviews with a episode uh, with Leslie Patterson and Dr. Simon Marshall. Uh, Leslie Patterson is two-time Xterra World Champion. She is a kick-ass triathlete. She and also Mike, uh, our coach. Yeah. Uh, and she is the owner and founder of Braveheart, uh, the Bra- uh, Braveheart Athletics. So, which is the which is the overall group that we belong to. Yep. Coaching group that we belong mm-hmm. to. And they have just come out with a book. Do you want to tell uh, the listeners what the book is about? Well, this the Brave Athlete. Calm the f down. What's the next part? Calm the F down, um, how to calm the F down and what to do about it or something like that. Something like that. But it is the Brave Athlete, uh, which is available on Amazon. And they also have an audio book coming out. In November. In November, featuring both Les and Cy. So we will include in the show notes a link to their book on Amazon. Go ahead and click through. We don't get any commission from this. Um, no, but you we should just like the book. Yes, and it's it's a great book for not only the self coach athlete, but also I think any athlete, regardless of whether you're endurance or whether you're sprinting or whether you're on a team sport, it delves deep into the psychology of performance mm-hmm. and how to optimize your brain and deal with the different types of brains inside your brain. The mini brains. The mini exactly, and you'll hear all about that on the episode. Mm-hmm. And with that, enjoy listening. Alrighty, and we're live. So right now we have Le- Dr. Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson on to the podcast. And this podcast we wanted to focus specifically on what makes a good coach and how we can make better coaches, both being a self-coached and also coaching other people. Um, they just released a brand new book called uh, The Brave Athlete, How to Calm the F Down. And in that, they list out a whole ways of how we can mentally relax. And I think they pretty much summed up Les inside both of my coaches for the past four years now. And they've coached Morgan for the past going on. A year. About, about, about a year. A year. Yep. And I think the biggest difference that they've made in both of our coaching is that mental that mental aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, they definitely have improved us physically, but I think the mental aspect has been the most. So what, in uh, in your opinion, what makes a Braveheart coach? So yeah. apart yeah. from what sets apart Braveheart coaching for other coaching programs and would you give us a brief background on Braveheart Coaching and why you decided to launch the business? Yes, you know, I'll, I'll probably start with that aspect first, Chris. So, you know, I started coaching um, probably about uh, 10, 12 years ago. Um, and, and it was largely due, due to the fact that I'd been in the sport for 25 years. And, you know, I just had a lot of people always asking me questions. And I just find all of the answers at my fingertips. And, and really, I had had, you know, so many coaches as a junior and a senior. And, you know, I was, you know I, I'd started to kind of have some success as an athlete later on as well. And, um, you know, I just was exposed to a lot of different philosophies of, of training and coaching. And so started to build my own philosophy. And, uh, you know, obviously as a professional triathlete, it's hard to make ends meet. So mm-hmm. having a coaching business is a perfect way to supplement income. So, you know, bit by bit, it was, you know, a lot of the coaching initially was really about getting to know the athlete. And I'd say that that's what, what is really foundational for a Braveheart coach. 
Um, it's one, you have to be self-aware enough to really understand um, how you operate in the world, how you think, how you feel, where your weaknesses and strengths are, and then be able to empathize and communicate with athletes about where they're at. Because we firmly believe that if you don't really know the athlete, you can't properly coach them. Yeah, I, th I mean, I'd add to that because I think that, you know, there's coaching is, um, you know, fundamentally it's a relationship, right? Uh, it's not, mm -hmm. we're not, uh, if it was just training plans, we would just be doing exercise prescription, you know, writing right. down, the, you know, obviously having some knowledge of exercise physiology and biomechanics and, blah, blah, and all the, the science of actually the, the, the prescription of it. But, but the relationship part is critical and it's critical not just because, um, you know, you you have to. It's a you're, you're in an environment where you're trying to get people to change their behaviour and stick with something uh, to see results. Um, but I think that when 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 you look at some of the things that athletes struggle with in their training, a lot of them have psychological or emotional roots to them. It isn't about the fact that the the you know the drills that they're doing or the repeats that they're doing physiologically. Uh, is incompatible with their ability to do them. It's often the fact that they have a struggle, like all people, with motivation, with pain tolerance, with worries about confidence. And I think that really, when you start to approach the coaching business as a human relationship and how you build trust and how you help people realize the potential, it changes the focus and it moves it away from simply being words on a page in training peaks or an email spreadsheet to actually getting to know the person and thinking about them in a more holistic way. So in this, because a lot of coaches in the digital age are using platforms like Training Peaks, so you may only you may never see your athlete, or you may only right. see him, you know, once a year in, at, at a training camp. How can in the digital age, what are some tips for coaches and for athletes who are being coached to reach out so they can start building that relationship, so coaches can get to know their athletes better? What are some tips that you've used, um, both? in person and in a, like a, a digital platform to help facilitate that relationship? Sure, I think, you know, FaceTime, Skype, video, uh, where you get to see each other is a yeah. huge thing. When you get to see body language and really sort of, you're able to read them a little bit more, they can see the genuine reaction or interaction rather that you have uh, to what they're going through, that's, that's really key. Um, and then also having many points of contact. So I find text messaging just so, so effective on mm -hmm. you know, a basis. Um, and it might not be even about their training. It might be about their kid's recital or the fact that their wife just went out for a new job. And all of that is just about saying, hey, listen, I care about you as a person. I care about your background uh, and what's going on in your life. Because ultimately that's gonna impact uh, you know how, how you you do in your sporting performance so many different points of, of contact and then obviously you know uh, getting on the phone at, at random points just hey how you doing you know what's going on and 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 often as well i, I find it um uh, effective in coaching is letting them into your world so that you're saying hey i'm going to expose myself and let you get to know me on a personal level too because ultimately the best relationships are two-way and i've found in the past that a lot of coaches you know, it's all about it's all about the athlete, which is which is great. But you, you kind of to develop a really strong and deep relationship, you want to get to know your coach as well. So, you know, um, obviously social media helps with that kind of stuff because you know if they're friends with you on social media, they get to see some of the the cool stuff that you've going on. But 
you know, ultimately I'll share stories or, or talk to them about stuff that's going on in my life and we can have a laugh and bond over that. And then if you develop that really strong relationship, they're more likely to um, express doubt, fear, uh, things that aren't going right. Whereas if you don't know them very well, uh, it's a very surface relationship and so it's, it's difficult to penetrate and get down into what's actually going on with them. Right, I really like that. That's, I think that's, that's key. And pivoting towards the book, you mentioned you know bringing up these emotions and how to bring self-confidence and self-efficacy. Could you talk a little bit more about the, uh, the me tree that you brought up in the book? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at the heart of this is um, about the way that we judge ourselves, the way that we judge what we can do, uh, what we think we are able to do in the future, what we think we can do now. And the, and the judgment, the human brain's judgment system is really quite remarkable. And it's far more nuanced and layered than just simply about someone's confidence. And so what we've done is we've represented the, 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 the judgment system that we have about ourselves as a tree. We use the metaphor of a tree. Um, and, and, and so, for example, the roots of the tree represent someone's self-worth, the fundamental judgments we have about ourselves as worthiness as people, uh, as, you know, I, I have a right or need uh, a right to be loved, uh, to be accepted, I'm a good person, and so on. So really fundamental things that really are sort of built up first through childhood and then and, and carried over into, obviously, adulthood. And then, then you've got the trunk of the tree, and where the trunk of the tree is where we're getting into things called self-esteem. So self-esteem, unlike self-worth, is less about your fundamental beliefs and how you judge yourself as a, as a person, but more about your, a little bit more about your abilities and what you think that you can do on a more global level uh, and your worth as well. And then we've got the branches of the tree and we often think of branches as a bit like, so we call it self-confidence. This is when most people are talking about self-confidence. So these are now a bit more, they're generalized statements about your ability to what you can do, but they're focused on particular things. So for example, you might have very high uh, self-confidence as a marketing manager in your job, but you have low self-confidence as an athlete. And so the branches of the tree are the first point in which your self-judgment system is differentiated or it splits off, meaning that you can be both confident in one thing and not confident in another. Self-esteem and self-worth is not like that. It's a fundamental sense about your totality of yourself. And then right at the end of the branches are leaves, and leaves are what psychologists or what we would consider self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is just a fancy way of describing the very specific task specific form of self-confidence so for example i might have uh generally high confidence as a self-confidence as a triathlete but i might have low self-efficacy to swim in the open ocean mm -hmm. so it's now you're talking about something very very specific and and of course trees have thousands of leaves and we all have thousands of self ratings about very specific things that we can do in life i might have you know, a high self-efficacy to defend, uh, de descend really fast on a road bike, but low self-efficacy to descend fast on a mountain bike and so on. And so what we're trying to do is when we, when we, we help athletes who we think on the face of it, it looks like a confidence issue. We look how far down in the tree that that self-judgment goes. So no amount of someone coming to us saying, you know, I struggle with self, with um, self-confidence in, uh, for big races or when there's a lot of people around. Now, that's probably more to do with self-efficacy, but as we dig down and we find out, well, actually, 
this confidence they have permeates other areas of their life. They might have, they might not have a lot of confidence in their job and in their relationships and so on. So we know that it might be a trunk issue or a root issue. And no amount of training someone to become really good at open water entrance and exits is really going to help if someone has such fundamental low self-esteem or self-worth because any information that you'll give them, they'll look and it'll feed into this narrative that they're not good enough or that they're mm-hmm. worthy. So it's really important that you get become really sensitive to knowing how deep in the tree, as it were, someone's self-judgment goes or self-judgment problems go. And that's quite critical. I'm not sure that many coaches do it, partly because they're not trained to do it. You know, right. you don't shouldn't require a PhD in psychology to be able to help athletes. But I think some tools and tricks that we use in our book are just helping coaches be a little bit more sensitive to the fact that it's a little bit more complicated than that. It doesn't mean that you can't help them, but it's a little bit more nuanced than just thinking about, oh, they've got a lack of self-belief or a lack Mm -hmm. of confidence. So how can, what are some good tips for how coaches can do this? I mean, especially from an early age, if you build up self-confidence and self-efficacy from an early age in, you know, youth development, since uh, what can coaches do, you know, at early stages to help build that up? Sure. So the self-efficacy and self-confidence both have the same drivers of what causes them to increase or decrease. And all the research points to consistently the number one source of information that feeds into your confidence is the feeling of success, what they call mastery experiences. So if you are consistently exposed to failure or what you consider failure or you're never, you, you rarely get a chance to feel successful though you've mastered something, then it's very hard to build self-confidence. So what you want to do as a coach is obviously give athletes an opportunity to feel successful. So this is really what goal setting is about, right? So you find short-term process goals or incremental goals. You're not having people try things that are too hard or always competing around people who are way faster or way slower than them or so on. So it's trying to find ways that they can feel successful but are still helping them build their skills. So that's probably one of the most important things that we that we can do. And it's really important that when we do give them master experiences, that they're genuine. In other words, we're not just lavishing on praise for things that they that, that they still haven't met a criteria for being accomplished at. So it's not, you know, and we see this all the time, is that, you know, with the participation medal praise in or the, no matter you show up and you'll get an award. And it's giving and it's feeding self-confidence or self-esteem in a very very unfair way because it's not based on performance or how you do so um so it's quite important that you make that information that you give athletes those mastery experiences and opportunities to feel successful but be genuine and that are also increasing their skills i think that's probably the most important thing and then how deep down into the metri do you think social media rots our self-confidence and maybe even our self-esteem now, that's a really great question, uh, and I think the the answer is probably um, we don't really know. Um, mm. But my my best sort of educated uh, guess about this would be that social media really exposes problems in your tree that are right. already there. So, in other words, if you look at social media and all you see all the time is perfection speed for everything that you feel as though that you're not and that information conveys to you that you're not fast enough that you're not good enough that you're not worthy enough, deserving enough 
sense tells us that the problem is that the social media is hitting a nerve on some little rot in your trunk or in your roots. But th those have already formed from, you know, as you've gr grown up. So I don't believe that social media is the cause of any of that. It just exposes or at least gives us a little window to where on your me tree you have problems. Right. All right. So it's more of a, of a mirror than it is actually yeah. causing it. And yeah. uh, as a coach, um, how do you mediate the, the rot, as it were? <laughs> right, right. Well, again, so one of the things that we try and do in the context of social media anyway is that we say, listen, the human brain is wired to broadcast to the world a view of yourself that is positive, right? And when we mean positive, we mean capable, attractive, sociable, likable, intelligent. And we do this subconsciously as well. We don't, you know, or some of us do it very consciously and deliberately. They tell you how great they are before it borders into narcissism. But most of us do it on a very subconscious level. And, and, and social media is really technology that enables you to do that. And psychologists call this impression management. You're trying to manage the impression that other people have of you. And so what we do in social media, there's lots of studies that have been done on this, particularly in Facebook, more, more recently in Instagram, but most of the studies have been on Facebook, is that we curate what we let other people see about us on Facebook. And what it turns out is that though that messaging that we're giving, that broadcast channel of how awesome we are, is a highlight reel. We, we, we use selective disclosure. We don't show or we don't show it nearly as much at the time, the reality of when we're hurting or vulnerable or sucked or be embarrassed, but we show the thing times that we kicked ass or we want some kudos. And so for our athletes who have issues uh, with their trunk or their roots in the tree analogy, is that we say, remember that what you're looking at is always a highlight reel. It doesn't represent the full spectrum of someone's life. And there's lots of studies to back this up. So when you look at things, re remember that you're not actually seeing, this isn't the perfect person or the perfect family or the perfect athlete that you think it mm -hmm. is. And, and, and my sort of anecdotal experience is the more perfect it seems on social mm. media, the less perfect it actually is in real life. Mm, yeah. uh, because then there's a tendency, if you don't feel as though the that worthy then the tendency to i have to have a stronger broadcast channel right. to shore that up mm -hmm. um so it's becoming very in tune so we're not a big believer of saying don't look at facebook ignore that it's to say look see it for what it is it's impression management software for people and we encourage you not only to curate your own but also do the exact opposite in terms of only presenting the ideal picture of yourself show instances or, dis or or talk about times where you feel vulnerable, weak or not capable. And the reason we get people to do that is because, and this is especially important for when athletes and the, the relationship between athletes and coaches, is because people, trusted relationships are built and, are, and rest on vulnerability and weaknesses. They're not based on strengths. So you don't find much of an association or you don't find closeness or intimacy in relationships only on how good you are at everything. You do it based on vulnerability and weaknesses. There's a whole host of social psychology literature about this. So, um, so, and so, so I think that's really important that you start to 
you know, in your own social impression management world, is to also open up and you'll find that un, un, unlike your expectation that people are going to ridicule me or poke fun at me, they actually do the exact opposite. They actually open up themselves. They're grateful. They're amazed. Oh my God, someone else feels like this or someone else feels like this as well. And that's what bonding on vulnerability and weakness actually means. And that's what it looks like in, 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 in practice. So both of you, Les being a pro triathlete and then also coaching um, pros and very elite athletes and Sai, your experience with the BMC team, are pros immune to the social media phenomenon or are are they just as vulnerable as everyone else? Yeah, just as vulnerable, especially because, you know, as a professional athlete, you have to post a lot to satisfy your sponsors. So, you know, you're kind of out there a lot more. So it becomes difficult to sort of be real with who you are um, because, you know, you're always posturing and, 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 and more for your sponsors than anyone else um, because they all want a positive uh, image of you to represent their products. So it gets really it gets really tough. So as a professional, in terms of looking at, say, your other competitors, they're posting a lot as well. So you're always seeing all their wonderful race results and training sessions and how lean they are and all of those kind of things. And I think it just becomes exacerbated as a pro because you know you're 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 taking it to that next level because you have to be the best of the best and you know all that kind of stuff so it's it's it's, it's almost like a microcosm of, of probably how everyone else uh, experiences it but then having said that you know if you're kind of mature in your sport and you've been around a lot uh, as i have you get to the point where you don't really give a shit anymore <laughs> you know so I, i'd say I'm, I'm i'm pretty happily there where it's like geez i've I've been at the moon and back, so it's like you can post yeah. what you want at your six pack. I really don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's quite it's quite unusual to find elite athletes to have very low confidence, um, and the reason is that if you're successful as an elite athlete, you're that's the number one driver of confidence. So it's kind of this self-perpetuating cycle. But they, but but don't don't assume though that just because they have high self-confidence, they don't have other thoughts and feelings that they feel burdened by. That they really struggle with pre-competition nerves or the weight of expectation, or struggle with body image issues, or struggle with training exercise addiction, exercise dependence. They all have those same things and. And, and, and often in endurance sport, they might have won the genetic lottery as well, <laughs> right, uh, to compete. But it doesn't mean they've won the genetic brain lottery at the right. same time. So like they don't necessarily have that, you know, these hardened, uh, um, uh, you know, chiseled out of granite personalities that make them extremely successful. A lot of them are very successful despite their heads, even though they are pretty confident. Yeah. Well, I guess that ties into something that you describe in the book is the the chimp mind. And I guess if you could kind of flesh that out a bit and then just the follow up is, is the chimp mind fueled by things like Facebook and Instagram? Um, yeah, the, 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 the social media certainly is like chimp porn. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. So, okay, so in a nutshell, you know, in your, in your head, there are lots of different parts of your brain that have evolved over different periods, meaning over millions of years of evolution. And, mm -hmm. and the, right in the center of your brain, which has been there the longest, six or seven million years, is called the limbic system. 
and that and in that is structures like the hippocampus and the amygdala and these kind of latin medically names that you may have heard but what the limbic system does is its goal is to keep you alive and so it's responsible for the fight or flight response it's where all emotions come from all instincts and drives come from but it's kind of stupid it can't actually think logically or rationally or it can't really think at all it's kind of an emotional reactive machine and we call it a chimp in fact we don't just call it a chimp uh, you know dr steve peters the, the psychiatrist in britain coined that but the chimp is a lovely metaphor because a chimp is you know it can be uh, soft and cuddly and you can have soft and cuddly emotions of love and lust and happiness and joy but you can also it can also have tantrums because it thinks your life's actually threatened mm -hmm. uh, so that fight or flight response so fear and anger and disgust and embarrassment and shame humiliation and so on and it will kick and scream at the rest of your brain for it for you to listen and it does that its only way of communicating with with you well, it's not the only way. There are two ways. One is through uh, uh, chemistry, so neurotransmitters and setting off a whole cascade of hormones that trigger certain reactions. But emotion as well. It's emotion-centric. It's the only way, place that emotions come from. And the sole purpose that we have emotions as people, as humans, is to drive decision-making. Uh, it, it tries to get us to make a decision, uh, and we do that is fueled by having emotions. Because otherwise, we never made a decision. We wouldn't last very long in life. Um, but it's a very primitive way of getting us to make decisions. And that's why, more recently, the professor brain, the wrinkly part in, in what scientists call the frontal cortex, um, is, is the exact opposite. Only facts and logic, uh, a bit slow, uh, but thinks things through very carefully and so on. And so all of the, the, the fights that we have go on in our head, and when I say fight, I mean when we have thoughts and feelings that we don't want, really represent that your chimp and your professor brain are arguing about who's right. Uh, and so when you look at social media, for example, and you're looking at the, the badass athlete you know, in your local club who not only are they really fast and lean and tan, they've also got what looks like a bloody perfect family and the kids are smart, you know. <laughs> the Mauricio Mendezes of, of the training right. communities. Mauricio <laughs> Mendez, you look at Mal Mendez and everything about him is just all, seems awesome, right? Now, we know that's his highlight reel. He's, he's also a really lovely guy, but... Yeah, <laughs> so what, you know, what your chimp brain is saying to you is, that's what a real athlete looks like. Look at you in your suit. You're squeezed like sausages and you're squeezed into your tri suit and you don't do any training. You can't even get up for master swim because you have to hit the snooze button too many times. And you know, you don't have nearly the motivation and you're kind of a screw up in school as well. And the chimp nonsense is telling you because it's trying to get you to say, don't put yourself in a situation that you potentially will be humiliated, embarrassed, or shown to be inadequate, or your physical life might be in danger. And the only way as a little immature chimp I can convince you to do that is by giving you very powerful emotions, to want to make you want to run away as fast as possible, or not put yourself, or not join that fast group, or not upgrade, or not enter a new race, or not go up to a higher, harder distance, or so on. It's trying to get you to run away and, and do something that it thinks you're good at, not what these other things that the Mal Mendes is of the world are good at. So your professor brain is trying to take over and say, come on, it's just a triathlon and your life doesn't depend on it. You're not going to get eaten by a shark and you won't get laughed at. You know, everyone's in it together. You'll enjoy it. 
But that fight really is the source of most of people's mental anguish. And winning that fight, or I should say managing that battle and who you, how you nurture the sometimes the professor brain to take control, how you sometimes want the chimp to take control, or this other brain that we call the computer brain, how you want that to take control. That represents the fundamental challenge for athletes to be faster and happier. And that's really what our book tries to do. Yeah, that's, that's great. I think we have time for one more question. I want to dive slightly deeper into that chimp professor because I think another, besides social media, where it shows itself is when you come back from a crash or when you come back from an injury, uh, especially like if you wiped out on your bike descending a hill. I know mm-hmm. descents, personally speaking, you know, it's a tough part for a lot of triathletes. And, you yeah. know, Les, you, you crashed uh, about a, a month ago. And coming back and getting on the bike, and when you get to that first descent, you kind of you, you seize up because you're afraid it's going to happen again. And you you have the, the battle between the professor mind saying, oh, no, you're going to be all right. You've done this descent millions of times. And you have the chimp brain saying, you just crashed, you just crashed, you just crashed. When you're coming back from an injury, how can you balance the chimp and professor brain and then also as a follow-up to that what are some other ways that you can get back on the horse mentally and physically after coming back from an injury or a really bad race or um or a crash yeah so you know all good questions here i think i think what's important when you are dealing with that fight coming back from say a crash for example for, you know, it's, it's, it's getting away from that fight uh, and trying to get more into your procedural memory. So using uh, another part of your, your brain that we call a computer brain. Um, and Sai can talk a bit more about that and there's certain strategies to kind of move your attention towards that that will help that inner chatter. Yeah, but I think like you said, with, and, and Leslie's no, ex- uh, no exception here, um, she's mastered this probably better than most athletes I know, is that when you have come back from a crash, and it might have been a freak accident, you know, some, nothing that you could have done to have changed it, or it could have been in your fault, but most of us like hit something or something hits us and we mm-hmm. didn't see something and so on. And so your chimp brain is freaking the fuck out, right? Because it's saying, now I told you this was dangerous, I told you you shouldn't be doing this, and so when you then think about going back, getting back on your bike or your injuries healed, it's telling you you're vulnerable, this could happen again, yeah, I told you this is, you know, and, and it's feeding you all this stuff. But if you look at the your professor brain's response to say, okay, well, let's look at the, the anal- let's analyze logically what's actually happened. Okay, I've crashed twice or three times in my in my life, and th- there will always be things that are not in my control that could cause me as a crack in a pavement I didn't see or a car could hit me. But we know that those things are fairly statistically unlikely or there are a very small chance of them happening. But it's the risk of, ta- of doing the sport. Um, but in terms of things like descending now, one of the biggest fears that athletes tell us have is they, if they've crashed, is that they, they, the first thing that hits them is that they struggle to go downhill very fast. They mm-hmm. tense get nervous and their chimp brain is freaking out as they're doing it and we're trying to talk them off the ledge. So what we try and do is to say, okay, we need to both kind of stroke our chimp and say it's going to be okay, you've got this covered focus on these things and we you know there might be some technique cues that you can focus on to make yourself heavy in the saddle your lower your center of gravity and blah, blah blah but you can also force your professor brain to say things to yourself over and over again that exude or help you exude a sense of calm confidence and being in control and that might be a little mantra that's tied to things to help you focus on what the you know the right technique or it might be something like, like leslie has one on the mountain bike 
that she got from her one of her mentors, Tammy Tabikin, Xterra, is uh, smooth, uh, fastest, fastest, smooth, fastest, smooth, smoothest, fast, fastest, smooth, smoothest, fast. Meaning, I'm I'm picking up speed, and my chimp is saying, "Oh, fucking slow down, get your brakes off." <laughs> Actually, the faster you go, the more likely you are to skip over and roll over things that could take you off if you were going slower. You're actually smoother and safer going fast a lot of the time. And you're saying this over and over to, your, uh, to yourself in your head because your brain can't think two thoughts at the same time. So you're crowding out or taking up bandwidth so those other negative thoughts can't take their place. So, but it still represents this battle between the chimp and the professor. So we, in our book, what we try to do is to say, okay, coming back from injury, there's a whole host of chimp gremlins along the way about how we seek out help or when we come back to um, uh, 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 our rehabilitation, when we get back to training. But also when we first kind of get back in the saddle, we know that we are particularly vulnerable to a screaming, tantruming chimp. And we have to prepare in advance for that, know it's coming, and have some strategies ready to calm it down and let your professor take over. That's great. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I think that's uh, all the time we have for today. Um, but if you want to get in touch with uh, either of you, how can our listeners do that? So yeah, so you can go on our website, braveheartcoach.com, and you can actually fill out, we have what's called a smog test where you get in and you fill, uh, get on the website, you fill out a form with some questions and I'll uh, I'll give you a call and just chat through your training, no no strings attached. So that's a good way just to get some a little bit of input from us. Um, and then uh, obviously to get the book, you can go through our website or Amazon or any one of those kind of big uh, entities. Awesome. And one final question. When is the audio book coming out? <laughs> yeah, so we record it uh, in, a couple of weeks. in a couple of weeks. We narrate it uh, in a couple of weeks, and then it's probably be out in November, December time. So we're excited about that as well, and uh, to use it uh, while you're training. Yeah, awesome. I'm definitely gonna have to download that because it's gonna be a good companion, mm -hmm. good companion <laughs> on some long runs and rides. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, I think that ends us for today. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys. Bye. Bye.